Welcome, everyone, to the Daredevil Podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that he has single-handedly decided that the New York Festival of Light is going to bathe everything in yellow hues. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. Hi, Matt. Such a beautiful day, isn't it? Hello, Matt. Such a beautiful day, isn't it? Daredevil episode 112, the penultimate episode of season one. The Ones We Leave Behind is brought to you by Ranskahov's Just Vodka. Ask for it nicely at your local Petri dish today. Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. Our tease act begins with Karen putting the gun that she has used to murder James Wesley into her per, out of her purse, I should say, and then into the river. She heads to her apartment, unlocks the door, finds a bottle, and begins to chug it. Then we head to the shower where there's some crying. There's a great shot of a foggy mirror, which she then unfogs to look at her reflection. Still more tugs from the bottle there. Wakes up in the morning in bed to the light and gasps. Uh, the bottle still on the nightstand. Um, she puts her hand on her mouth, heads to the fridge. There's a beer. She grabs and suddenly she turns. It's the shadow of Wilson Fisk who tells her it's a difficult thing, isn't it? Taking a life, feeling uh, the weight of responsibility of all the years the person you've murdered has lived. Moments that they've cherished, the dreams that they've struggled towards, gone because of you. I want you to know something, something important that I've learned that it gets easier the more you do it. And then he grabs her face. She wakes up in the same bed we had seen her before, hand over her mouth, and we go into the title card from maybe the most atmospheric teaser of this series to date. Indeed, Pete, this atmosphere is bathed in, in what is, has, has already become a theme uh, in the series. It's bathed in this yellow, sickly light uh, most of it kind of through the through the back windows, uh, you know, in the back of uh, whatever particular scene we might be in. Uh, as for Fisk's dreamlike appearance here, I noted that when he first appears, he's kind of his uncomfortable self that we have seen a lot of. Um, I personally would have preferred if D'Onofrio uh, either decided to or was asked to play Fisk slightly differently because I think the audience expectation at the start of this episode is that it's really unlikely that Fisk is actually in her apartment. But that being the case, we kind of don't need to dangle the dream thing too much. And I would have liked it if he was a little bit more of his or Karen's representation of what she thinks Fisk's, Fisk is like and not the actual Fisk performance. But nonetheless, a heck of a start here. Uh, I like, too, that when she looks at herself in the mirror, there's none of that goose jumping uh, shtick of seeing someone who isn't there suddenly behind her it's just the visage of her own guilty face and this is something that she's struggling with throughout the episode um 
the rest of the episode proper begins with Karen entering the office, checking out the coffee maker, heading back to her desk. And then there's a great shot where she looks outside into the night. She lifts the window shade and we get the reflection of just her eyes now. Simultaneously, the floor creaks and she is frightened out of her wits by Foggy having just had this uh, run in with fake Fisk. Though this is kind of repeating many of the cinematic tools from the teaser act, uh, the yellow light is back. We have lots of shadows. She's she perhaps is not looking at her reflection, but we're seeing her reflection, and it's it's uh, repeating her sense of guilt and whatnot. It's incredibly effective, nonetheless. If you think of all the times that we've seen any TV character or any movie character take a life, rarely is it. Uh, kind of carried with this weight or, or the impact is felt with this weight by the, by the killer um, and, and kind of done so expeditiously. So because we're probably not counting the title card sequence, we're maybe four minutes into this episode, maybe five. So it's been done very, very quickly. And the idea that they've not seen one another in a little bit, there's some catch up. Uh, you know, it's just foggy the Richard, um, but that he's got to talk about how he's not gotten back together with, uh, with Matt, even though we know that's kind of happened. Um, and she is lamenting the falling apart of this law practice. She saw the, uh, Nelson and Murdoch sign in the trash and, uh, the way that everything is going uh, calls certainly for a little levity. Wants to know if she's been hitting the juice because she kind of smells like a distillery. And what I found interesting was presumably this is 24 hours later or so. And I like that we're kind of unstuck from time here a bit. Uh, that yellow light in the background, is it the light of early morning? Is it the middle of the night and it's street lights and that sort of thing? There really is this haziness, which is so evocative of what she's going through, you know, barely sleeping, uh, barely able to stay awake, exhausted, no doubt, physically as well as emotionally. And um, all of this, you know, not helped by, uh, as Foggy mentions, the friction that he's having with Matt that he feels is bleeding over to her. Indeed, I think he suspects that she's upset. Uh, entirely because her two bosses are fighting, not because, you know, she's killed a man in her attempt to uh, actually uncover the real evil in the city. This is the second time in this series Karen is in major post-traumatic distress. Uh, the first time we met her with um, Daniel Fisher and everything that happened there, and now that she has taken this life, um, the needing to confide in foggy and then possibly later Matt, but the inability to do so. She, uh, she goes on to reference rather casually the idea that maybe she, she should uh, indeed stop drinking and go into the hard stuff here, meaning, meaning drugs. And though it's quickly followed up with some more foggy humor um, and, and, not out of place humor, I might add. He's he's trying to lighten the situation himself uh, with his lines of smoking a doobie. 
Um, it, it's this moment of kind of darkness here. I, I suspect that, I mean, I'm sure all the listeners have not, you know, shot a man in cold blood as she did. Um, <laughs> just uh, a we, few. <laughs> we, pardon me, just say I'm sure and no we know one who listening. you are. <laughs> uh, I'm sure no Stop one listening. listening. <laughs> I'm sure no one listening ha- has felt that experience, but that notwithstanding, we've all had our tough times, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that for most people it would be a logical extension to say, I'm shaken. There was this awful thing. I can't talk about it. Alcohol isn't helping. Let me go straight to, you know, cocaine, heroin, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, silver serpent. Indeed. Um, so kind of a darkness here with Karen and with with the rest of this episode to discuss and one episode left to view. I'm wondering how deep we're going to go with her. Well, that Foggy says to her, you can't just run around killing people and call yourself a human being. This is the writer speaking to what her issue is and speaking directly to Karen. But when she goes to give Foggy the um, the info from the man in the mask, she opens the drawer and does not give him the converse box full of stuff that Ben gave her. But, uh, you know, he now knowing who the man in the mask is, doesn't think he's a terrorist anymore. Um, So we're at least past that stumbling block as far as the character is concerned. Pete Foggy mentions in the scene as well that uh, things may be weird in the office. Um, (laughs) Karen clearly not knowing how weird they truly are, but Anyhow, Foggy adds, you know, he's still around. The implication he's still around for her, to which I say, bow chicka wow wow. Um, but the show does not linger on that, uh, probably to its to its credit, because romance might seem a bit out of place in in this series. But as he opens the door, Matt is there. Um, and I kind of love that he doesn't say a single thing. He just steps out of the way. Yeah, and it's here we get a great shot of the handwritten Nelson and Murdoch attorneys at law note on the office door there. Um, so at least that wasn't awkward. <laughs> um, Matt asks her at this point why she's here so late or early. And I just thought that that was a brilliant line to add because it's acknowledging know when it is. Indeed, indeed, acknowledging that they're all keeping these weird hours because of the things that bother them, but still the trio is finding itself together, um, even though they're they're trying not to. And when they get to discussing what's going on here, uh, her obsession with coffee throughout this episode, <laughs> trying to make her weak coffee for everybody, um, she confesses that it's foggy who believes that he got Elena Cardenas killed and, uh, that if they were still speaking, this could all be resolved. It is at this portion of the story where I really had a, I really had a sense that things are truly falling apart. And it was perhaps the first time where I really started to believe it. Now, you know, asterisk, that's believing it with suspension of disbelief. I don't actually think by the end of the next episode, it's going to be like, 
well, now we can't be friends anymore. Goodbye, goodbye. I mean, I would, I, I would, I would predict, having not seen the finale, that we're going to end up with some sort of happy closure for the three of them. Um, but this was the first time where I just kind of sat up and said, "Is this really? Is this really falling apart? Is this partnership really this? You know, three-person partnership? Is this really uh, falling to pieces here?" Well, I mean, she's the one that says that, that she almost goes to tell Matt uh, when he asks her, did something happen? She says, yes, the world fell apart. Didn't you notice? And it's there that we go from one world in chaos to another and Fisk with Vanessa as he's checking his cell phone and she finally comes to. There is something about Vincent D'Onofrio's brilliant performance just as he is checking his phone, where you really get the sense that it is the thousandth time that he has checked it in the last 24 hours. There's just something about it where he's not expecting it to look different. He's hoping there's the, there's there's a paragraph of dialogue there just in the way he does it. And it's 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 just incredible seeing him here. And then, of course, the whole look in his face changes as she wakes up and he's. He's so appreciative of that. He tells her that she was caught in the middle and he's sorry. And and then, Pete, there's just this great um, almost almost one-upping of each other where the, the mm-hmm. mighty Fisk tells her he's removing her from the country and she has, she has plans uh, bigger and better than that. Right. You know, wants to know if he is going to be with her which he says no, and he says, well, I'll, I'll be fine here with you, that, uh, you know, I made my choice and that it's one I still make. You're going to find who did this and make them understand that they could never take you away from me. And, I mean, despite the fact that he is the bad guy, despite the fact that I think on a certain level we mourn for the fact that she is moving to the dark side. Uh, somebody who, when we met her uh, as the art dealer was celebrating creativity and beauty and, and, and the best of society here, she is going to being pulled down round the, round the opposite way into his world of darkness. Nonetheless, it, it's such an empowering and lovely scene for the two of them, you need to feel good for them, despite the fact that that you know she's headed to to a bad place here. And it's just a it, it's a remarkable presentation, remarkable acting from the two of them. He's interrupted by Francis, who tells Fisk that they have located him. The next shot we see is in the basement where uh, James Wesley and. Uh, Quickly, Fisk is joined uh, by Leland, who's working his way past Francis and the other guards. Get your hands off me, moron. He called me OS59. Great way to introduce Leland to the scene here. Um, it's, it's a small writerly way to have you know it's him um, and to have him show up after Fisk uh, has arrived, it allows you to start the scene silent and largely motionless and kind of taking it all in, not discovering it with shock. Um, but then you get Leland to, to arrive and, and to have that shot, uh, the shock rather. And Pete, 
I mean, I know we're doing this kind of chronologically, but uh, you know, we've all seen the episode at this point. If you're if you're listening to the podcast, yes. Um, if you haven't watched this episode, do not listen to this podcast. My point, though, Pete, is that that uh, Leland is oddly shifty um, as he shows up, and it's enough to to get noticed. Now, obviously, after the fact, we know why. But even on first viewing, the show's really doing a nice job of seeding that which is ahead. Yeah, and when Fisk says to Leland, look what they did, what they did to him. Um, It's interesting, given that they're going to have a conversation later in the episode where Fisk has to point out to Leland that it wasn't the man in the mask who killed Wesley, that he doesn't deal in poison or guns. I think it's internally consistent for Fisk to have already reached that conclusion. All the interactions that there have been uh, with the masked man, the, 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 the paramount of them being Fisk, you know, beating him and Fisk watching uh, the masked man fight with, uh, with uh, Nobu. There was no opportunity there for, you know, the old uh, um, Indiana Jones take out the gun and shoot the guy. He's seen enough to know that the masked man is not a shooter, I, I I would say. So I don't think it's kind of a a writerly slip. I think it's it's consistent with Fisk saying that. We get the recap from Francis that uh, Wesley had asked for the keys to the SUV and his gun, and Fisk says, "And you just let him leave alone." And Francis points out how he was ordered to stay he wanted as many men on you as possible it's then that fisk loses it headbutts francis drops him to his knees and punches him repeatedly he's my friend wilson uh leland screams maybe this isn't the best time to be beating your men to death uh he did what he was told i think they call that loyalty or something and there's this great shot. Fisk is physically keeping Francis up and then lets him go and he falls to the floor. And I don't mean to laugh in terms of that being funny, but just the brutality of it is so shocking. And then he says to his other men to clean him up. Uh, yeah. It's one of those things you laugh. So you do not cry or do not share your shock. And, and um, I mean, Fisk is such a vicious person such a vicious creature and i wonder if this beating and the severity of it was inserted perhaps to remind us of that despite the fact that we've seen fisk thus far in this episode filled with sorrow filled with grief filled with bittersweet happiness filled with love you know it's a reminder that this is the kingpin uh the the great villain of the comics and it's here that uh they get back to um Anything going on with the Japanese? Are they moving money around? Fisk, for the first time, floats Gao. Do you think this could be her? And Leland keeps coming back. We see later on to the to his money being on the Japanese. Uh, maybe they found out about Fisk's little bonfire with their boss. But, great uh, line. Great, great line. It, it is. He dismisses Leland. Uh, But Leland cautions him that whatever war you think you're about to start, don't lose sight of the endgame fitting that we're in 
this penultimate episode um, that uh, once Senator Cherry has cleared the last of the zoning issues, you can tear down the rest of Hell's Kitchen and build your better tomorrow. So we really have an idea of scope now specifically what's going on. Uh, but he says that it's a shame not everybody's going to be there to see it. But stuff, Matt, 60 happens. <laughs> um, it, it really is an effective scene, particularly in light of, uh, uh, of what's to come with, with finding out Leland's motivations here. Uh, Leland is indeed consistent. You know, there is this end game. We do want to make this city a better place. Uh, or at least Fisk does. I think Leland is interested about, you know, adding some zeros to his bank account. Um, and if that's helping the city along the way, you know, all, all the better. Um, but again, it's just a nice reminder for for what's to come in terms of, you know, Leland saying en enough about worrying about these details. We have a big picture. Right. And to just remember that the wind blows hardest the closer you get to the mountaintop, which kind of sounds like something either Nobu or Gao would say to him. And I must say, Pete, it was ir ironic to hear that on a week uh, where we have released, uh, you know, the Daredevil podcast on Monday. It was uh, a two hour episode shield leading to an hour and 45 minute uh, shield finale podcast released that in the wee hours of Wednesday morning, uh, recording this on Thursday for its Friday release, and then uh, recording this weekend the finale to, to Daredevil. Um, <laughs> that, along with, uh, for those careful listeners, you know, uh, a cold affecting my throat just a tad as it's, as it's leaving. Uh, so I, I know well, and you know well, Pete, uh, that that wind really is blowing around the mountaintop. Is this real life? <laughs> There's a great moment, though, that follows. Fisk has pulled a chair up already next to Wesley and mournfully kisses his forehead before he reaches into his pocket and gets his phone out and sees all of the different numbers that have called him over the last several hours. Uh, in terms of missed calls, and then there are dialed calls, and he sees the smoking gun that Wesley had spoken to Fisk's mother at 9.28 p.m. It's, it's again, brilliant acting out of D'Onofrio. And I, I had to think for a moment for the proper way to, to kind of capture how he was treating the body uh, of, of Wesley there. And what I came up with was he's treating it like it's the body of his brother, um, because there's obviously, I mean, the death portion notwithstanding, there's nothing kind of romantic in how he interacts with him. It's just that fraternal love, stroking his hand, tenderly kissing his head. It really, it, it's an incredibly touching scene, only earned by by having given both of these characters full kind of uh, pathos and understanding of what motivates them. And it just, just a, a, a really wonderful scene. We meet up with Ben in an alley where the man in the mask jumps down, liking to make an entrance as he does. And uh, this is really about catching up what uh, the man in the mask has been up to. You know, catching up what went down, as some might say. Yeah, not beating on uh, bad guys lately. And um, that somebody has gotten a piece of him. 
but uh, he's gone the distance. And we get a very strong hint, and given that this is spoiler alert, Matt, uh, Ben Urich's last Uh, episode, that he has a pretty good idea of who the man in the mask is. Almost sounded like a boxer there. Always the reporter. Indeed, you can count on a count on the reporter to bring you just the facts. Um, there's discussion here. It's pure heroin um, distribution, production, money. Tearing down Hell's Kitchen isn't cheap. Um, the Steel Serpent. He's he's seen this uh, uh, type of heroin before. That it's uh, it's pure like you've never seen, Matt, and um, that. The Russians come in here and then the connection to the Chinese triads and everything there. But the Russians were distribution. He's um, seen these uh, blind people walking around before. He saw them on a uh, particular street, uh, 51st and 10th. Uh, But... uh, the man in the mask is going to have to be uh, inconspicuous if he's going to track them down. And a nice little kind of yuck yuck moment, at least for the audience here. Um, of course, he can kind of dress down and blend in, and uh, it's um, it really is an interesting moment to reflect back to to how far we've been in these twelve episodes, where we were shown this distribution, production, money making. Uh, empire in the first episode and and didn't know how to put all the pieces together and here we are we have a better understanding than these two characters uh ben referencing there's a chinese you know the top man is a chinese woman uh but he doesn't know her name well shoot we've known that for a while madam gao come on man we we know who she is but um great little nod too. you know uh matt tells him that uh you better get yourself a better coat and uh ben tells him uh you better get yourself a better outfit pete we keep teasing that he he, he says he's working <laughs> on it pete there's only one episode left and, and, and i don't is. read ahead but it's called it's called daredevil it is it is matt and i'm starting to feel like this is a lengthy origin story for <laughs> for the character that that we kind of know from the comics right at Josie's, Marcy is waiting at the bar. Foggy comes in and apologizing for not having found a cab quick enough. And Marcy informs him that the buffalo wouldn't make him a vodka martini. She had to settle for just vodka. Foggy tells Marcy that, of course, Josie uh, can be nice. You just got to ask nicely uh marcy here her normal um just kind of skeezy self however pete even in this scene i find a strong marvel cinematic universe female character because yes she's scuzzy and yes she's you know etc etc but there's this line here that she was hoping when foggy called that it was for a booty call uh, which, of course, I had to look up because I live such a chaste and and pure life. Um, however, joking aside, I I kind of dig that they have a female character who's just kind of like, 
hey, I like um, face-to-face huggy kissy time, and I'm okay with saying to somebody who I've had uh, huggy kissy time with that uh, we can do it sometimes, not necessarily, you know, it need to be some sort of, uh, you know, let's get married, white picket fence kind of thing. Kind of, kind of dig that they're going there with a the character, even though she also is soulless. But he's here to give her something to read and refreshes both for Marcy and for us the uh, Mrs. Cardenas story that they had been in opposition um, with at Landman and Zach. The scope again is mentioned. The uh, hundreds, perhaps, of buildings to be torn down across hell's kitchen and uh that this is only half of what could be going on um and he brings up wilson fisk and she goes to leave that she cannot be around for this and this is creating a real conflict as scuzzy an attorney as she can be Still, though, Pete, she stays, she reads the file, he talks her into reading, not talking about it, and, you know, there's enough of a light bulb there where we've seen in the past, she's okay being a high-powered attorney for a corporation, that's her job, and, that you know, I was going to say it's honorable, I don't know if I quite believe that, but it certainly is, it, it is a job needing to be done. But she is also a, a person who has some soul left. And I like that we kind of end the scene with her uh, promising to read the file. We intercut that with um, Ben going into his apartment in some serious foreshadowing for later in the episode. But Karen is there, sneaks up on him. A uh, lot of that going around tonight. Uh, she wants to know why he hasn't published the story about what Fisk did to his father just yet. He needs a second source. Indeed, he is a responsible newspaper man, uh, not, uh, you know, not uh, working for some sort of internet operation, you know, where they just do internet things. It's, it's only real if it's part of the establishment, man. Yeah, I like even some of the slang, not even internet. I think at one point it was just referred to as the net and only older people <laughs> refer to it as the net still. And uh, everyone knows it's the interwebs. Indeed. The tubes through which trucks drive. Um, however, he's kind of okay with this two-tiered system of he's been let into the the pearly gates of the fourth estate, but she can publish herself online if she wants. I'm wondering if perhaps she has a future at Slugline, anyone? Yeah, um, that's what I was going to mention, actually, that this isn't, uh, you know, where you just make things up, not some blog where you just make things up. Slugline, anyone, it's all connected. Indeed. By the way, uh, fantasticgeek.com. Yes, and she is drinking again in this scene, um, but this all comes back to what they witnessed at uh, St. Benazet and um, the digging and the mentioning of Rigoletto and trying to corroborate the story there with someone who has since moved to Florida, perhaps the gentleman that we first saw Ben with. Um, 
when we uh, came to meet the character. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a finality to them being in person here uh, that he says he's going to write it up tomorrow. He's going to give it to his editor and see what happens. And Karen thanks him profusely and hugs him. And uh, with that, we cut to more than five minutes later, having gone by the five minutes that Marcy promised uh, Foggy. And uh, she's, she's just stunned by everything that she's read. And um, you really sense in her that she is feeling a, feeling a notion of justice with a capital J, not just billable hours. And then Foggy again, showing what a great, uh, what a great uh, attorney he is, a great orator. Um, he goes w- with the violin strings of, you know, fighting for her soul, but then nails it home by saying uh, that when this badness happens, there's going to, you know, the badness of eventually Fisk will be caught. There will right. be questions about what Landman and Zach knew and who knew what. And she's kind of on the line here and here and now. Right. And tells her, too, that uh, it's the first time we really have it put this way by a character. I know we've seen it, you know, superimposed before and on newspapers, but that uh, that the devil of Hell's Kitchen is um, the partial supplier of this information. Yeah, it's a nice and logical nickname. I mean, of course, we've seen it in the newspapers and whatnot, but you really do get the sense this is what people would refer to him as and uh, perhaps setting up some sort of name shift by the end of next episode. Just just, just predicting here, not spoiling, of course. But between Fisk as a client, uh, Owsley is name-checked at Silver and Brent. There are a lot of connections here, and, you know... Beyond the the jab, he he tells her this is going to be a problem. She's concerned, of course, about committing career suicide. But the ethical issues outweigh the vocational ones. We pick up on a busy street in daytime, almost like it had been predicted, Matt, by one of our other characters. And there's Matt listening on the street he hears voices a bicycle chain were honking a uh, swerving car dog panting a woman coughs another sneezes and then we have a blind woman tapping her way along the pavement with her cane she gets out into a crosswalk a car quickly stops and I, i love the device of the classical music Um, punctuating this scene, she gets in and that's what Matt becomes fixated on. Once he rounds the corner there, drops the cane, bolts up the fire escape, and he follows this along the roof line to the warehouse where they are bringing her. It's the difference between good hand of the writer and bad, bad hand of the writer. I doubt any of our listeners had the notion that this is a cheap device by which he can track the car and know which car it is. I think all of us probably thought it during the course of the scene, like, oh, that's the thing. But it's so logically done, organically done. You know, this is a high-class operation um, selling high-class heroin. So, of course, there's going to be some strings while they, you know, 
ferry around the, uh, as we will learn, self-induced blind uh, couriers and whatnot. And, you know, is this is this a, a writerly conceit by which uh, Daredevil can track the car? Sure, but it just works and no one is complaining. And when they arrive at the uh, warehouse there, he senses the uh, Caucasian guard bring her to the door. There's two guards there. They knock. A third one uh, brings her into the operation. Pete, this this chase scene from rooftop and blacktop, it really, really is uh, is nice. There's a particularly wonderful shot of Charlie Cox going up uh, a real ladder with the real skyline uh, in the background there. I know they're filming in New York, and a lot of this is totally authentic. But you got your star, you know, headed up to the roof for real here. Um, also, it's great kind of integration between clearly stunt guys doing the twisty, turny, jumpy sick stuff. Sick flips. Indeed, they were. They were sick. And uh, as you mentioned, Pete, they uh, they end up at the alley there. Um, but then we cut to Ben at the bullet 10 to talk to Ellis Sin. Yes, wants to know if he's in. And uh, he is not. Uh, a woman informs him that uh, the kid has something at school. He'll be in later. Gee, I'm sure that will go over just great. Yeah. We see a familiar three SUV motorcade. Fisk is in one of the cars talking to his mother. I know you want to stay, but it's not safe at St. Benazette. And there, there is a real tenderness here. Um, he's concluded that she now has to leave and leave in a big way, sending her to Italy. Um, just kind of tenderly explaining uh, that, that uh, despite the fact that they gave her Zippa at, uh, at the care facility, she'll have the real thing in Italy. You know, the, 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 the Alzheimer's like condition that she has, whether it's Alzheimer's or, or, or whatever the proper medical label would be. It, we, we all are certainly familiar with it in the real world, but it's just presented with extra heartbreak here because she's so sharp and in the moment and then is losing it. And then you add to it this necessary evil of he's trying to soften her up to then just get information about Wesley because he's on a detective hunt here to find, to find the killer. And he's using this most feeble, and and damaged of sources right you know she asks several times you know it's such a beautiful day isn't it um she's also concerned what what's she gonna watch for tv over in uh in italy i guess they don't have netflix yeah thank goodness they didn't suddenly have fisk turn to the camera and say <laughs> netflix available <laughs> in italy for only uh nine euros a month get it today but she remembers wesley such a nice boy always so polite well dressed um and uh they had talked but she just phases out again which pete puts the audience in a very uncomfortable position because we want her to fade away over this particular topic. It's challenging us to essentially kind of root for her Alzheimer's, which it just is an incredibly awful place to put the audience, albeit for a moment. 
but it's what we want. We want her to not remember for the sake of our characters. And when you have a character like Ben's wife, Doris, where you root against the Alzheimer's, why is Alzheimer's a character on this show? I, I, I suspect just because it is so cruel, you know, it's such a cruel disease that, that can have someone be completely present one moment and gone the next. And, and this is a show about um, pathos and awful things. And, and it is, a, I mean, there is this interesting um, dichotomy here that we have these two characters who, who are fading in and out. And then the men that love them are, are trying desperately to hold on. Karen uh, gets a phone call. It's Ben and uh, wants to know if uh, her, I'm sorry, his editor is back. But his uh, his kid plays the cello and got the solo. Looks like there's a reception afterward, and he is not picking up the phone. But uh, the upshot here is that uh, she's going to sit tight until he can get back to her. He's going to run this past him, and uh, Matt is on the other line. And uh, while she's talking with him, and by the way, Pete, I I was convinced that we were going to stick with Ben, but instead the story has us stay on the Karen side of of the concluded conversation. Um, I may be Johnny come lately here, or shall I say Johnny the Baptisty come lately here, but with Matt on the phone with her talking indirectly about how he has reopened that wound on his side, the light bulb went off <laughs> for me. Gee whiz, Pete, I've heard of another guy a while ago who <laughs> you mean had Jesus, Jesus whiz. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. You know, who, who, with the cut, Jay whiz. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Some people thought he was a whiz. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I, I apologize only that, that the light bulb has only come, uh, gone off now, but wow, <laughs> the show is framing this guy as, you know, the, a, a, a dark Christ figure. Um, which isn't exactly a newsflash, but uh, to me it was like, oh my goodness, it's the wound on his side from the Roman spear. What's going on here? Well, wait till you see uh, at the end of episode 13 when he walks on water. Wow. Is, is he a mutant? I don't know what that is. <laughs> 20th Century Fox requires us to say we don't <laughs> know what, what that is. You should see the NDA I signed. <laughs> <laughs> But Pete, you could you could tell me the things and then I can repeat it into the podcast, and that's our little thing around the non-disclosure. No, it's not. <laughs> Ellison finally having arrived at the bulletin after his kids uh playing of Brahms, and uh he gets into a rather heated conversation, or shall we say Ben gets into a heated conversation with him that despite having his child play in front of the entire school was one of the greatest moments of his life and reading this story, which oddly he raised an actual newspaper, which is not where you put a draft of a story, um, was uh, the exact opposite. Wait, you mean first drafts don't get printed immediately and sent out to newsboys saying, you know, crying on the street saying news here. No, they don't. Well, then, uh, shame on you, actor. Shame on you, script supervisor, for not catching that one. But 
perhaps Pete, they were bewitched by the rather frank and crass dialogue here. Um, Ben is called a whore by Ellison and then he admits it. There's even the uh, rather, um, shall we say, direct line. Yeah, I think it's uh, he couldn't be more a whore if he was wearing makeup and stockings or something. Uh, Lipstick and stockings. It was lipstick and a red dress, Matt. Hashtag notes. Hashtag lipstick and a red dress. Um, I like, by the way, Pete, that somebody made the decision to have this fight unfold in front of the coworkers. It's great. It makes it more difficult to shoot, more expensive to shoot. Um, but it just the fact that it's the fact that it is an unprofessional conversation going on in get ready for this uh, newspaper lingo here, Pete. The bullpen by not the city a desk. Print, not a print uh, convention. The bullpen. Not a um, convention. <laughs> all the all the all the newsies in the bullpen. All the newsroom. <laughs> the, the, indeed. Just just batting it around there. Them, you know, spilling the ink. Um, but the fact that it's so public puts a puts it in a more desperate light. I mean, look, you could have had it in Ellison's office and, you know, F this and F that. The fact that it's public and the fact that they're using the word whore, you know, makes it even worse than the naughtiest of words. Matt, you almost act like you like, if not have some practice with that word. Well, you know, bullpen, it's, uh, I've been in some newsroom bullpens. Forget you bullpen, (laughs) but, um, we escalate quickly, Matt, from suspension to clearing out Ben's office and in between being told that all of his crime stories don't run, not because they're not sexy, but because they're S-61. In response, Ben claims that uh, Ellison is working for Fisk, and that seems to be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I like that it lets the camel's back break both ways, which is to say... If Ben is accusing him incorrectly, um, then it is highly inappropriate. Conversely, if what he's saying is true, that that uh, Ellison works for Fisk, then, of course, Ellison needs to fire him because now the, the gig is up. So I like that it cuts both ways. We go to Gao's warehouse room where backpacks are visible. Uh, the, the steel serpent uh, labels. There are um, a number of people packing this up. The operation we glimpsed first back in the pilot. But Gao goes upstairs, and uh, it's from there that um, we see a new blind uh, person arrive. A guard is playing on his phone. Um, We hear a thud. And then there is some Mandarin and the faintest heartbeat, the rhythmic knock then on the door. Uh, he opens it up and uh, takes another one out. And the masked man is now in the warehouse. This reveal again of her workshop, uh, which I don't believe we've seen since the pilot. It, it, it's, it's an even more horrifying reveal now. Um, because we know the role that it's playing in, in how it's rotting the Big Apple. Um, and 
similarly, the views that we have seen and will see in this episode of the of the blind workers there, they're presented in a bit more of a visceral way, and it's really really effective to just really show the 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 silence and despair and darkness of this place. They're scarred eyes, Matt. Something we've seen before, but here very stark in their presentation. There's a guard circulating the drug packing operation. The masked man takes out another one and um, he moves closer and closer until he lures that one into the darkness and takes care of him. A gun slides near the people uh, packing up the drugs and then he walks among the blind people here for a couple seconds before Gao sees him from above and uh, yells in Mandarin and they all clamor around him. They grab him. He tells them to wait that he's trying to help them. And we cut to Leland. And let's just mentally stick a pin in that, in that wonderful and awful vision of the, the, the desperate workers flooding over him, like, like animals, like, like, ants like a wave um because when we see him again he's just not there anymore and i thought it was kind of lousy since it's such a visceral image here same exact thought where did they go did he did he blind talk his way out of there i am one of you (laughs) i i can only imagine that it is the the rare rough story point um because in that next scene, and we'll get to the, the Leland scene, which is in between the two in just a moment, he just appears from above. So yep. a couple points off there. But Pete, we have Leland saying again that it must be the Japanese who did all this. And he really seems to be pushing that as an alternative to uh, what we will find out is the truth. Right. He says those bastards are like shadows in a dark room. Uh, that maybe all this was really the nut in the mask. And here's where Fisk says that poison and guns aren't the way he operates. But Leland maintains that if you tick somebody off enough, he will start to do whatever it takes. Um, Fisk calls upon Francis to double the offer on the streets and to continue to double it until someone talks. And Leland wonders aloud if he should trust Francis after the beating he laid on him. Hmm. Me think the Leland doth look for uh, people you can't trust too much. Yes, but Wesley trusted Francis. That's all that matters now. He gets a phone call, Fisk does, and uh, takes off uh, right in the middle of a conversation we see, as we mentioned before, Gao flanked by two guards and the masked man up on uh, a higher plane there just jumps down, takes out one of them. The other one shoots with a machine gun and hits barrels, which begin to ignite. Um, and he takes him out and is left there to have a uh, not poignant, but so much pointed conversation with Madame Gao. Indeed, uh, he says that she took their eyes and she says, no, they took their visions, uh, they took their vision themselves uh, with dedication, to show their dedication to something else uh, in the world. And they have faith 
that they, um, you know, some things beyond the, the distraction of your world. And uh, with that, I mean, we are all expecting he's in the power position here. He moves towards her. Tell me about Fisk. And with that, she hits him and hits him hard. It sends him stunned to the ground. And there is such a weight to how this is presented. There's such a weight to the the the, the way in which his body moves across the floor, how stunned he looks. And um, just a, 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 a shocking, shocking moment. And then, poof, he looks up or, well, he... <laughs> He, he senses up and she is gone. This building, meanwhile, is coming down all around them. There are people still inside, the same people he somehow, you know, blind whispered out of that he's responsible for. So one of the downed guards uh, has a gun, which he shoots the sprinkler with and then demands that the guard get them out. Fire trucks arrive on the scene as does our man Brett Mahoney of the 15th Precinct. And again, want to remind our listeners, this is not, not the Mahoney from, uh, from the Police Academy movies. It's a different character. And uh, hopefully that made you chuckle. Um, uh, joking aside, though, I like that it was just that familiar face. And I like that the Hell's Kitchen cop is going to be face-to-face here with the devil of Hell's Kitchen. Uh also the you know the 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 hell's kitchen boy of some minor fame and so forth it's just a a reminder that it is a small world with brett mahoney having the drop on the man in the mask um he quickly turns that around i believe with a two by four and informs him that he didn't kill detective blake or shoot those cops that blake and hoffman were dirty that they're working with Fisk along with others in your precinct, that he is not the bad guy. And uh, with that, we cut to Leland on the rooftop, joined by Gao. And I think that's the moment where finally we say, aha, you know, the, the truth revealed here. She reveals her own truth that she speaks English now. And he's, I think, mildly surprised. But he's he's such a cool cat, Pete. You could tell him just about anything. And I think that he would just kind of absorb it and acknowledge it and move on. Right. And she says that the need for illusion has passed, that uh, the heroine has been lost in the flames and that her interest had never been about heroin. That was born of convenience and it is no longer so. But uh, this is where he reveals their hand in this. If he, if Fisk found out what we did, this isn't going to matter. And she wants to know if Wilson suspects. It's just an incredibly um, shocking scene for as muted as its presentation is. Um, the confirmation here that Val, uh, Gao and Leland in, in concert had uh, hoped to poison Vanessa to remove the distraction from Fisk. Um, which is an interesting way to kind of try and be, you know, redirecting Fisk there. Um they also have the quick exposition moment there that neither of them knows why Wesley is dead. Um, and then, Pete, we have an ominous ending to the to the scene. Mm-hmm. Terribly, incredibly ominous. Like, I don't uh, this this will be the stuff of, of theory discussion in a bit. It will that uh, she is heading back to her homeland uh, to reflect upon the future. Uh, where's that, Matt? China? 
not China. It is uh, it is farther than that, which my brain immediately said, but wait, there are a few places farther from New York City than China, uh, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. And then I had myself wondering, well, it makes me think of, of, of the, the very... Uh, you know, earthly place afterlife and agents of shield. And is there some sort of thing there? But I have no idea, Pete. All I know is that she leaves in the shadows. Um, and, and as uh, Leland just turns his head away for a moment to take a breath, to, to continue to talk, she is gone. So yeah, the show definitely saying no joke here. She, she has a quick exit strategy that seems a bit, uh, a bit otherworldly. Well, those as guardian uh, tunnels work pretty quickly. Usually it's with more light, though. It is, isn't it? We get a final scene, a heartfelt scene, a necessary scene between Ben and Doris. Um, You know, he's able to break it to her more so for himself that he was uh, was let go from the paper, but that. Uh, she tells him he never really needed it, that uh, there's a story eating uh, him that uh, he knows he's got to tell. And she reminds him that uh, there's this thing called the internet. Indeed, she, knowing it's not called the net, for goodness sake. Um, but she tells him to use the internet, uh, even though it has a lot of noise on there. I guess, Pete, they're talking about the various gas bags, sharing theories about uh, the, <laughs> the most uh, inane of, of, of topics. Um, but, um, I like Pete that she is so present in this scene. Uh, my read was that there were a couple of moments where just by how she is phrasing things that she might not be totally in 2015 at the moment that, that she might be kind of believing that it's perhaps several decades ago, but regardless of when she is, she is here in this conversation and giving him very, uh, appropriately wifely and partnerly advice on how he needs to proceed in in ironically life and it really does set up what's going to take place later on um pete with that we cut to ben giving karen a call he tells her that he left with his head up and interesting juxtaposition he then says he's going to start a blog um and and you know, again, does he really feel that he's left with his head up and that he will be able to cut through the noise of the internet? Um, at this point, he's headed to his car, and I was convinced that his car was going to blow up. Um, the show does a wonderful job in this episode and in other episodes of just really selling this sense of gloom and doom when it comes to him. Um, and I was convinced he's going to get in the car and turn it on in, you know, kablooey, like we've seen in, in, many other TV shows and movies. Um, but instead Karen hangs up and the scene continues on her end, which I thought, I thought was an interesting way to transition back to the office and to stay there. Um, because she's ha- has the door locked and who comes knock, knock, knocking at her door. And consider the way this episode is laid out, Matt, how did it begin? It began with Karen and then Fisk uh, Karen in the office with Foggy and then Matt. And now as we're winding down, we have Karen and Matt. And in a moment, we're going to have somebody else and Fisk and quite a bit of symmetry. 
It definitely is. And, and as Matt uh, comes in, he tries sending her home. And I love her response here. Is this what we are now? Three people who <laughs> don't even talk to each other. Right. And, you know, despite the fact that he's had a really uh, nasty night, 64, um, you know, the kind where he thinks he's seen the bottom of humanity and the pit just get, keeps getting deeper. He knows he can't do this alone. And he sobs and they have a really needed hug. Perhaps this is the, the solipsistic moment and we've reached the bottom uh, at least in terms of the 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 bottom for the three of them. Yes, Foggy isn't there, but perhaps this is kind of the collective bottom and they're going to start to make their way out. Pete, as we've talked about many times before in, in podcasts of other series, there reaches a certain point where you as the audience know that you have certain story pressures of things that must occur. Um in the finale. So we're kind of at a point here where if we're going to end with, if we're going to end with that sign put back up and hanging and the three of them are, are partners again, um, they don't have a ton of time to do it, but maybe, oh, maybe this is the, 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 the shot here. But from that, that moment of optimism, Pete, we move to the final scene of the evening. Yes. And of Ben Urich who arrives back in his home he takes a frame out of the box there detailing the Battle of New York with a subheadline that reads buildings leveled, hundreds killed in Midtown Battle, which is, uh, you know, the first factual time we've ever seen a uh, death toll associated with the Chitauri invasion from the original Avengers movie. And... Um, he grabs a bottle. He's, uh, you know, settling down at the computer. He's poured himself a drink, begins to type. And just like the fake Fisk surprised Karen, real Fisk surprises Ben. And it's such a, a surprising and elegant way to reveal it. The camera moves just the tiniest bit and it's being lit. Um, in such a way where Fisk's white face is, is in that moment, the only thing protruding from the shadows, the care that it must've taken to place the lighting just so, so that you could, you could, you could reach that really is astonishing. And I think it's a moment where the audience is collectively off our feet and we don't know what to expect here because we know what hangs in the balance life and, and mother and all of that is just, pregnant in the air the moment Fisk's uh, face is visible. And Ben tells him a couple times to get out of his apartment, but also, you know, hears him out. Fisk comes with an apology. But where this all goes back to is where uh, Ben crossed Fisk's line by going to see his mother, and he asks him straight out if he was alone. Clearly, there is a leak at the paper. It's never mentioned by name. We can assume it's Ellison, but given that that conflict took place in front of the entire newsroom, could really be anybody there or a number of them. But, uh, you know, asks him about Wesley. 
Ben doesn't know who Wesley is, so he's eliminated from suspicion there. And uh, Fisk tells him that he didn't think so, that Ben is a man of principle, conviction. He understands and even admires. But you went after my mother. That's not something I can forgive. And Ben, you know, tells him bravely that, you know, he's had a lot of years pushing ink here of people threatening him. And, uh, and he says, uh, but this is my mother. So I'm not here to threaten you. I'm here to kill you. And just like, uh, fake Fisk choked out, uh, dreaming Karen, real Fisk chokes real Ben to death after smashing him into the desk and then onto his back on the floor and we get a shot of his flailing legs, Matt, a long shot before a smile on Wilson Fisk's face, a deep sigh, tones of the grandfather clock, and then Ben's still face and Fisk steps on the previously seen frame picture of he and Doris as the episode ends. It's an incredibly well put together second half of the scene here. The first half, including kind of condemnations of the decadent instant humanity that we, that we live with or participate in. Um, but there's just that slow, angry boil to the scene and it, it explodes with the attack and the show knowing to take things in a more, um, more toned down route here we don't need to see fisk banging 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 smashing it's just this prolonged you know squeezing of uh squeezing the life out of him and and then seeing the pieces of uh of that as a result the feet ben's head etc and pete the ultimate way in which they end the episode the camera fades to black and they just hold the black for a few seconds there before the credits start and then the music comes in. Objection, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, let's start with uh, somebody certainly unquestionably guilty of murder, Karen. Yeah, to see her hit what we have to hope is her low point at the beginning of this episode is I wouldn't say shocking, but just the depth that she's at. No wonder she's imagining that Fisk is in her apartment and then there to uh, choke her out. But uh, taking these, uh, these bottles to the dome um, there's, multiple hints in this episode that she's struggled in the past with this. So this is not something new and the stuff that Ben found, which we still haven't had, uh, you know, uh, explained to us. And now that he's gone, probably never will. I would say perhaps never will. Uh, she floating the theory that if she went public with certain information or theories that, that others could, with with not too much digging find out uh, whatever this mystery is about her past um but pete we move from karen with figurative blood on her hands to fisk who ends the episode with literal blood on his 
Yes. Uh, shocking to – first off, I have to ask, how did he get in the uh, the apartment? You know, maybe an, an error or an admission on the level of how uh, the man in the mask got free of, you know, 40 uh, reaching blind people. But um, for him to just savagely – murder Ben because this line of going to see his mother was crossed. You can't have the, uh, the sacred and the profane together, uh, without the irony of it. Pete, would you include Vanessa on your list of defendants? Given what she says to Wilson when he's going to move her out of the country, no, I'm fine where I am. And uh, yeah, you're going to find who did this and uh, make them understand that they could never take you away from me. She has very clearly gone over, as, as you termed it, Matt, to the dark side. Definitely agree. She's uh, she's she knows where she stands, and she knows it's a different place. Um, someone not standing for part of the episode, though, is Francis, and uh, uh, certainly not a defendant in the same sense as the first three, Pete. But uh, why why does he stand thusly accused? Well, I mean, he has really kind of inherited this number two for Fisk. I can't say that Leland has stepped into Wesley's uh, shoes, given that we know he is working against Fisk. But uh, Fisk is going to need somebody else. And, um, you know, we'd seen him abuse Wesley and, and yell at him, now physically abusing Francis here, who allows it to the point where several scenes later he's there to do his bidding. And indeed, still, still there, still the loyal worker. Uh, much less loyal, uh, as we had suspected, though, is Leland. And I called it. And, you know, I, I think the show did a great job of throwing us the hints, subtle and not so subtle, that he and Gao were behind this uh, poisoning of uh, the benefit and really trying to refocus Fisk by eliminating Vanessa. And, and, and what, a, what an interesting plan there, you know, kill the woman because he needs to concentrate on their, on their business venture. Um, Pete Va- Gao is the other, the other half of that, uh, that villainous partnership there. But uh, I dare say she's on this list for, uh, for more powerful reasons. Yeah, wherever it is that is considerably farther away than China that she's going floats that supernatural element and some things we'll talk about in our sidebar segment. Pete, lastly, where do you come down this notion that uh, it is Ellison who's the the guy on the payroll? I think we can discuss his ultimate... um, you know, master in our sidebar segment as well. He's certainly because of firing Ben belongs in the defendants portion of the podcast right now, really inexcusable, uh, despite Ben's sharp tone and, uh, 
you know, some of the rhetoric there to fire a seasoned journalist like this and not have it look petty. In fact, you can hear people react in the newsroom there like, really? He's doing it over this? Pete, just devil's advocate, it might be petty. It might be borderline unprofessional. Are the are the slowly shrinking fortunes of the bulletin a place where where maybe they're all in slightly slightly in panic mode and it's a little more understandable i i could get the financial reality of it he's still a star at that paper a long tenured one at that not that tenure means anything at a newspaper but that would never happen your Honor, may I approach the bench? May I approach the bench? It's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. So, Pete, let's just hit Ellison here. Uh, this week on Agents of Shield, we had a, a bearded goody who <laughs> who gave up, uh, you know, gave himself up for for the best of reasons. Uh, do we have uh, in Ellison his kind of polar opposite twin, the bearded baddie? I don't think that Ellison is the leak. I think the firing comes out of vanity. He talks about, you know, trying to help Ben before previous scene. We had seen him in the series. He's talking about, you know, moving him up, getting him a bump in pay, trying to help in terms of the insurance coverage for uh, Ben's wife, Doris, I don't think he was the leak. I think it was somebody else. Well, with with only the one episode left, I would suspect that there's no reason for us to find out, but uh, time will tell. I'm excited to, to see this, uh, this final episode. Pete, do you have any off-the-wall theories to share? Gow. Uh, the whole thing with... Uh, the blinding of people and how they did this because they had faith. There's reference to where she's going, that it's considerably further away. I think that we can um, say that this is probably not earth. Um, we know that the afterlife uh, uh, is on earth that was seen on agents of shield where our inhumans are. So don't think she's an inhuman. And, uh, you know, we have to think about is, is she as guardian is, is she even human? Uh, what's going on? What do you make, Matt? I come at it from the point of view of, there's an overall story that this season wants to tell and there's an overall tone that this series wants to have, particularly since it is setting up three more series and a mini series. Um, on the one hand, I have a hard believing a hard time believing that they're going to give us something as um, directly comic booky as, it gets revealed in the next episode that she's using the Bifrost to return to Asgard. Um, because I feel like even though it's the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it does not suit the 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 tone of this show. Definitely. That said, we've seen in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where they've started in this very, very real world in the early episodes with the, the tiniest bit of 
we're going to go after some weird technology that might be from aliens, but it's, it, it doesn't feel very comic booky to a place in the series Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, where there now are you know superpowers and there's, there's more of that going on. So could this be a, a longer term game where, you know, at the end of season two, we're used to more of this? I don't know. I suspect not. But clearly they've put their foot in the notion of something um, beyond the normal human experience, shall we say. I have to ask it again. These barrels in her warehouse, um, these blinded people. Is there a connection between what's in them, what's been done to them, and Matt Murdock? I'm going to vote no, but uh, if we're going to learn this season, we're going to learn when when next we chat on Monday. Indeed. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, always great to hear people checking in uh, with various uh, thoughts and feedback. What do we have from the old iTunes machine today? We have a review from Americans Fan. The headline is an enjoyable podcast, though there's the occasional blind stumble. Three out of five stars. And it reads, I greatly enjoy listening to the podcast twice a week uh, and have even managed to hold off on watching the entire season so that I can listen to the podcast with no idea where the show is going. Both of these guys are clearly fans of the show and their in-depth exploration of it is a joy to listen to, especially with some humor that they sprinkle in. There are a few problems, though, that prevent me from rating the podcast higher. First, there is too much recapping for my personal preference. I'm ecstatic that these guys discuss every bit of an episode, but Pete practically goes over lines to the point where you wouldn't even need to watch the show to know what happened. I would prefer much more analysis instead, especially from Pete, since he's usually recapping instead of uh, saying, sharing his thoughts, I'm reading as written here, uh, on a particular scene or storyline. And if they continue to say the lines word for word, I'd recommend just playing an audio clip from some of the conversations. It should be faster, but you also get the inflection, tone, feeling, etc. behind the words. And while I'm loving the show, I'd certainly like to hear some of the criticisms and aspects of the show that the guys are neutral or aren't fond of. There are times when it sounds like one of the guys want to talk about their apprehensions or dislike of a certain aspect, but are afraid to for whatever reason. You guys have well thought out opinions and I'd enjoy hearing missing an eye there, them, even if they were critical sometimes. Besides those things, though, keep up the great work. I will continue listening and look forward to having you return for season two of this awesome show. Well, Pete, best of all there from that listener is that uh, they're uh, they're sticking with us. They're looking forward to season two. 
uh, as as are we all. Certainly, um, interesting interesting criticisms there. Certainly, these these podcast episodes have run longer than I think we initially thought. Uh, you and I comment both on and off the air what an incredibly dense show this is. Um, I think I, I think there are some episodes where where the the chronological way that we're hitting things. Um, it, it requires slowing down. It requires some of the the close inspection, but uh, also something to keep in mind uh, for the future. You know, we're about to put Daredevil to bed. We got we got Jessica Jones in six months. Maybe we, uh, you, you know, Pete. Maybe we do the, the the ten minute recap version for Jessica Jones. I don't know. I I I. And this is not to be defensive, but I think so much goes on in these episodes and. I think if you go back and listen to the 12 Daredevil episode podcasts that we've done that, you know, for my money, which, you know, these are free, you're not going to find more that uh, others are doing and giving you the level of depth. This is not to say that let's have uh, two and a half hours on a 58 minute episode. We're not doing that, but these require the examination. And I think there are lines of dialogue here that really do require, um, looking at that, particularly some of the more symbolic things, which I dare say doesn't go on, on agents of shield or agent Carter. I would be interested to hear from uh, from other listeners as to to, to two things that that uh, this uh, iTunes reviewer mentioned. First of all, being in praise of the twice a week uh, rate here. Now we look, we all like everything more and faster and better, and you know, and supersized and all of that. Two a week versus um, the lack of clips, because looking ahead. F- to Jessica Jones, uh, you know, as the next kind of Netflix spot where we don't need to churn it out the night that it airs. Um, I mean, clips are not impossible, but I could tell you just doing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and two Daredevils and also spending the other, you know, uh, 22 and a half hours of, of a recording day, um, you know, doing the other things of life. Um, there's no way that we could do two a week of, of a Netflix show and clips at the same time who, who out there wants clips and one episode a week. And I'm not saying, you know, Oh, we're going to take away an episode a week to punish and to, to punish anyone. Just, is that something people are interested in? A lot of how we're doing this podcast is based on fan feedback. And I'd like to hear more on, on those two topics because clips, audio clips would be easy enough to do and easy enough to insert. It would just take more time and, and might result in, not doing an episode a week maybe it's one every five days maybe it's one every seven um but as as we're starting to wrap up this podcast i'm i'm eager to see what we could do uh for the next one i think we both pride ourselves on on being a um you know podcast that is reflective and responsive to these reviews that's why we read them and we do take the criticism both positive and negative seriously. Um, so certainly would like to hear, you know, 
who else out there and, and what their feelings would be as far as the schedule. That being said, Matt, you've done the clip podcast solo and I'm sure you could speak a little bit more to the turnaround rate there. Yeah, I could tell you doing uh, looking back at Lost that had at least three clips an episode and sometimes maybe closer to six if the episode uh, warranted it. Um, it does take more time to do. I'd say to watch and take notes and do clips for a 42-minute episode of Lost sometimes would be in the neighborhood of 80 or 90 minutes. Um, and again, that's with notes too. That's with pausing. That's with thinking things out, etc. Um, so something to think about. I, I I think, um, you know, when next we do a, uh, pardon me, a Netflix Marvel podcast for Jessica Jones, um, I mean, we'll have a number of things to figure out, including format, including when it comes out. You know, if it's going to drop, say, for example, during the during the holidays, that gives you a certain availability. It also gives you certain family obligations where we maybe couldn't do three in a weekend. So um, all good stuff. I, I, I welcome... Uh, I, I welcome a lot of uh, reflection between you and I, Pete, on this commenter's words. And uh, just like old Daredevil, we might get a couple dings here and dings there, but we're looking to we're looking to uh, to sew things back together and be even stronger. Hey, Pete, maybe we need a new suit or some meditation. This is true, and you know what, Pete? Some of the best meditation is done by people who interact with you on Twitter. And how can they do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 5,754 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, named for that, that early podcast, uh, you can be in touch with Fantastic Geek in a variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek with a PH on the dot com, the Gmail, and the Twitter it's so much fun interacting with everyone on Twitter. Pete, that's usually me on the Twitter, but you interact with people on the Facebook. How can they do so? Find us on facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek. Again, with the PH, all one word, like us, and we will be bound for life like Matt and Foggy. Oh, <laughs> uh, just a quick programming notes by the way while next monday we will be doing of course the season finale daredevil 113 uh, we will be back a week from today uh on friday to do kind of a season one wrap up and uh you might want to stay to the very very end of that season one wrap up uh, working on a little something special and that's all i'll say but i will say this pete to all our listeners adios and give you the final word you spoke to my mother 